Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where it snowed yesterday. And I have to say that I'm taking this as nature's way of telling us to all stay inside. Uh, so I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe as we continue to confront the COVID-19 situation. And one of the things that you can do in this time where we have more time inside is perhaps some people are engaging in more reading. I know I am, and I'm very much enjoying it. And I spent this morning reading a new graphic work entitled Enemy Alien, A True Story of Life Behind Barbed Wire, which is a graphic representation of a first-person memoir from the First World War. Very excited to welcome the author of Enemy Alien, Cassandra Luciuk, a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. Cassandra, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. How did I do on the last name? Perfect. All you right. nailed it. That's great. Uh, <laughs> always my biggest concern when people come on is uh, making sure I get names right. So let's uh, talk about Enemy Alien. And as I said, this is a graphic work. Is it fair to call it a graphic novel because it's based off of a, a memoir? Does novel work here? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it definitely works. It's, uh, you know, we, we, we kept as close as we possibly could to the, the, the original source, which was a memoir that I found in the archives. But, you know, we had to do a little bit of editorializing. So I think graphic novel, uh, graphic history, either of that works perfectly. Yeah. Okay, so the the book, as you said, it's it's this memoir that you found, and I, I'm curious though, why did you want to do a graphic novel, graphic representation of a first person memoir? Because my initial thought would have been, you know, you find this memoir, uh, it tells this incredible story. Why not publish the memoir or work it into a way that the, the, those words that you found in that memoir are represented textually to reflect that original source you found. Like, like, what is that process like? You find the source and then graphic novel. Just walk me through that process. Yeah, so um, when I first came up with the idea for the book, I was actually working on an academic article on internment. So I never had any intention of straying from that academic format of publishing. And my mindset was very much so that I was going to turn this into um, something a little bit more formal, whether it was a, a book or an article. That was 100% the direction that I was going in. Um, but the more that I sat on it, um, I realized how much of a good story this was from start to finish. And I didn't really know if I could do anything with it in the way that I wanted to in the confines of academic publishing. I, I had sort of, for the article that I was working on, I had pulled out as much as I could. Um, but of course, there's only so many quotes and anecdotes you can add to any given piece. And I think a lot of historians actually have sources like this that either get um, diluted or simply never see the light of day because there aren't many spaces for them or because we feel discouraged or are on our own self-conscious about doing work that others might not consider academically rigorous. Um, although, side note, I think we're we're getting better at, at finding the space for, for telling good long-form stories, right? Things like active history is a perfect example of this. Um, and this is all now finding its way into the profession at the same time that it's also permeating the quote-unquote outside world. Um, but yeah, I just really wanted... Um, the story in its entirety to be told. And I just couldn't think of a way to do that in a traditional article or book. Um, and two, I really wanted to highlight the voice of an internee. In a lot of ways, this is a historiography that relies heavily on others to kind of do the talking um, because the source base was largely destroyed by the government in the 1950s, and the survivors have all now um, passed away. And even when they were alive, 
they were really hesitant to talk about it. There's this famous quote um, from an RCMP um, informant who says that Ukrainians remained in fear of the barbed wire fence. And this was well into the 1940s and 1950s. Um, so for me, this was a way to ensure that um, the voice of an internee was unfiltered and uninterrupted and not really couched by my own commentary or ideas. Um, and I think the last reason for this format is because I really wanted to um, write something on internment that could be accessed by a broader community in a way that's just a little bit more equitable. Um, I wanted to get it into the hands of people who, for a variety of extremely valid reasons, um, aren't necessarily interested in picking up, you know, a 400-page book, but who want to understand what happened here. They want to get to the core of the story in, in a, in a frankly, an easier way. Um, so I think to summarize, it's kind of part that the medium is conducive to a long-form story, part that it allows an emphasis on uh, the subject, and part that it really was a way to kind of branch out. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there that I, I think is really <laughs> valid, as you say, the idea that we need to do a better job of making things uh, engaging with people uh, that they can get into the story uh, of what happened in the past. But you said something that I think is really interesting there that, that you wanted the story told in a way that wasn't really couched in your ideas. But I, I'm curious that how do the images then reflect that and, and not the specific images, but as you're coming up with the idea would the images, which are being created, not inherently have some, contemporary ideas and sensibilities within them, regardless of, and we'll talk about the, the partnership uh, with the illustrator in a bit, but just as a, just a concept, do the images not inherently project some of that onto the text? Yeah, I think to some extent that's something that's, you know, unavoidable, right? Um, but, you know, what we did was we relied, we have a few, uh, we're lucky enough to have access to a few um, photo albums uh, from the camp. And so Nicole relied really heavily on those uh, those photographs to build the the world of Enemy Alien. Um, so we, we tried to stick as close as we could to what we knew was actually there. Um, but Again, right, I think to some extent this is this is unavoidable that our own ideas kind of creep into this. Um, but I think what was more important for me was more so that the words reflected what the internee said, the the images. Um, it wasn't I don't think it was as pressing, but I, I really wanted the words to be as close to what uh, the author, you know, whoever the author is, uh, I wanted it to be them in their own words. I didn't want to do the kinds of editorial interventions to sort of like explain what things meant or to sort of try to take away certain um, phrases or language he used to sort of soften it. I didn't want to do any of that, right? Right, and we, we'll say too that this, this memoir that you found it is of a Ukrainian Canadian who was interned in uh, Kapskasing during the First World War in a, in a work camp, basically. And what's really curious to me, so I've done a little bit of work, uh, not much, on the Ukrainian Canadian experience in the early part of the 20th century. I had a project recently uh, on it uh, at a site out in Manitoba. and. What's interesting to me is that there's just this lack of resources. When, when I was trying to find information about this site, it was really difficult. So your work that you do normally is on the Ukrainian-Canadian experience. So you find this memoir of this individual who is uh, in this work camp. And what is your reaction to it when you find it? Uh, you know, just as a historian going through archives, I remember finding documents and almost wanting to like get up and like scream. I was so excited when I found something. Uh, but yeah. what what was your response to finding this memoir that eventually is the source material for the book? Yeah. So um, 
me too, by the way. <laughs> um, I, I've done that quite a few times uh, or like placed very excited phone calls to like friends and family being like, oh my gosh, I found this. But uh, so I, I understand. Um, but I think maybe to, to answer that, um, I can talk a little bit about, about the historiography too. So um, like, I, like I briefly mentioned, the, the topic of internment as we know it today, is actually still a really um, embryonic and nascent field. It hasn't really yet benefited from generations of academics making critical interventions. Um, so we're still, well, we're at the tail end of what I like uh, to call a first wave of scholarship. Um, and the folks who, who did that work starting in the 1970s, 1980s, did a really good job, first of all, um, discovering that this even happened, right? We didn't know that internment happened. Uh, it's not like the government was shouting it from the rooftops. Um, and, and then they also used really fragmentary evidence uh, to kind of piece this whole story together. And then from that, they were able to, to give us what, you know, the five W's, the who, what, where, when, and, and why of internment. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's been really hard to beat for um, subsequent generations of academics because, you know, we don't once that's been done because we don't have a very good source base for this um, and we couldn't really rely on oral history. Right. The majority of documents were destroyed by the government. So um, there wasn't really much to actually add to this. Um, and the topic kind of sat. Um, so. What I tried to do when, when I got really interested in internment was I wanted to think a little bit outside of the box in terms of where um, to look, right? So the government records are gone, um, and others have already mined the kind of uh, government-adjacent records. Um, but what about actually going into the community? That was the question that, that I asked myself, right? Just by the nature of what the internment operations were, we know that it disproportionately affected working class Ukrainians, um, some but not all of whom were also members of the organized political left. So first the Ukrainian Social Democratic Party and then the Ukrainian Labor Farmer Temple Association. Um, so for anyone who's who's doing anything on kind of late 19th, 20th century Ukrainian Canadian history, um, it is absolutely mission critical uh, to talk to Larissa Stavrov, um, whose archival collection, as well as knowledge on the Ukrainian left is unparalleled. And so um, I was working with Larissa on my my dissertation work. And one day I just kind of asked her if she happened to have anything on, um, you know, the USDP slash the ULFTA in relation to internment. And she was like, yeah, I do. And came out with this giant box of material. Um, and so the memoir was in there. Um, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is is history. But um, it really took a kind of, uh, again, thinking outside the box about where to look. Um, and then once. I actually found it, um, you know, there was also all sorts of material in there, all of which made its way into um, an academic article. But with this source, it was like that immediate feeling, you know, that kind of like just almost out of body excitement of like, oh, there's something here. There's something I can do with this. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a really it was a really good find. <laughs> So then you, once you have that and, you know, you, you have this idea, this inspiration for uh, the, the book, how does it come together? You know, you, you have the illustrator, Nicole Marie Burton. How do you find her? How do you take it to the, the book is published by uh, our friends at Between the Lines? Uh, and how, how do you find them? Like what what is the collaborative nature of a book like this? Because a lot of historians, I think we're used to. You know, traditional projects, you go, you do the research, you write it, you send it off, you get the comments back, reviewer two is a jerk, and so on and so forth. But this one is, is really a lot more of a collaborative project in part, if not mostly because of the images. So, so how do you find Nicole? How do you get to BTL? You know, what is that process like? Yeah. Um, so uh, off Right off the bat, I'll say that this whole project took five years, which is um, actually really upsetting to say out loud. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't say that to, to discourage anyone, but it was really a, a long and a, and a complicated road. And now 
granted, part of that is because I was a novice, right? I um, I didn't really know much about the medium. And uh, for that, I have to, to give a big shout out to the Graphic History Collective because they were uh, super, super helpful. And they gave me such great advice over the years. They were the first people I spoke to um, after I realized that I wanted to do this. So they were really, really helpful. Um, and obviously, I also had other projects on the go, the most important of which is my dissertation, my my long suffering dissertation. <laughs> um, so it wasn't full steam ahead all five years. But um, I'll, so I'll try to break it down how, how this all looked. So um, the first thing I did, of course, was I had to translate it. The document was originally in Ukrainian. Um, I had to then figure out how to frame it. I you know, basically I was asking myself, are there enough pieces here for a story? Because it's not enough to just have someone lay out their experiences. You have to have story arcs. You have to have, you know, lessons and significance. It has to make sense. So I was trying to figure out the framing. Once I realized that there was enough here, um, then I had to develop a script. Um, so I put a script together and then I moved on to the mission critical work of uh, of funding, uh, because obviously the artist needs to get paid. Um, and maybe actually we can we can talk a little bit later about um, how difficult raising funding is for, you know, especially graduate students and the precariously employed, because because that was quite a ride. Um, but once I figured out funding, then I started looking uh, for the artist. Uh, and this was, I think, the single greatest delay. This actually took three years. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So I spoke to a lot of artists trying to to find a fit. Um, most of the people that I spoke to were were very booked and very busy. Um, and then there were others that just were clearly not a fit. Um, and and that was really discouraging. But I, I think I actually learned a lot from that. And, you know, the, the first thing and I, I'm being a little bit glib here um, is is just how erroneous that kind of middle class parental talking point of don't get an art degree, you'll never get a job is. Um, <laughs> So many artists told me that they were booking at least two to three years out, um, you know, which is great for artists, but is not so great for me. Um, and secondly, um, the the lesson that I took from that is that you don't actually just want to find somebody who can draw, right? And in a lot of ways, that's the easy part. You you kind of also need someone who who gets it. Um, and I think I've, I really found that person in, in Nicole. So like you mentioned, Nicole Burden of, of Ad Astra Comics. So she kind of made, um, the three years of searching worth it, I'd say, because she, she really instantly understood the project. Um, I remember the first time that we met, I just really felt like this was, uh, this was safe with her. Right. Um, I think this is hard to admit, but you know, if I'm if I'm going to be honest, and in a lot of ways, I really felt like this was this was kind of like my thing, right? It was kind of my thing to tell, right? I discovered it. Um, it was about my community. Um, you know, it was about you know the experience of my community. But I just felt um, very comfortable with her, and I knew that she would do it justice. And I I think anyone who reads the book will will very clearly see that. Um, but meeting her was kind of one of those moments that reminds you that sometimes you, you can't rush. Sometimes you just have to let fate intervene, um, which, you know, which I did. And I think it, it worked out great. Um, but yeah, once she signed on, then things started moving quickly, right? It was, uh, you know, three years to find her and then everything else was sort of, was sort of fast. So we, we built a storyboard together, which I learned is, is quite a bit different than a script. Um, it actually involves talking through and visualizing how every single panel is going to look. And that's different than just simply putting the words on, on paper. Um, then we created some sample pages. Um, and then we wrote up this, our application for, for between the lines. Um, once it was accepted by them, it was kind of just off to the races to, to sort of get it done. Um, in terms of the collaborative process with Nicole, um, Nicole, uh, Nicole kind of has an unmatched intuition in her drawing. Um, you, you know, you had mentioned before about like our own, uh, sort of like present day creeping in, but it was really weird how, uh, you know, without even much direction at first, Nicole just kind of like put things on paper and it worked really well. Um, but yeah, Nicole's also a very careful researcher. Like she 
she would come over and she would borrow every book on internment off my bookshelf. She poured through uh, the photo albums I shared with her. Um, she asked tons of questions. Um, so because of all that, I just sort of felt really good about letting her um, do her own thing. My job was kind of the words, but I wanted her to interpret them in her own way. Um, that being said, we, we did collaborate on a few things. We walked through the storyboard. That was quite a bit of work. And we, we went over that many, many times to make sure that things were just right. Um, and we also did several rounds of, of edits on the finished product. So just tons of back and forth, you know, um, you know, moving things like moving text, um, you know, like eliminating mistakes, you know, cleaning up the background, things like that. We did tons of work on that. Um, and overall, I think it was a, a really uh, positive process. Um, you know, certainly for me, as a historian who, who like you mentioned, is is kind of used to doing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, solitary work. Um, but it was also really cool to see someone then articulate words, um, you know, that 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 I wrote right in a different medium. It's kind of a cool thing to see and a, and a really uh, good exercise in improving my writing because now, right, I'm writing my dissertation and now I'm always thinking, you know, like how would someone draw what I'm explaining right now? So um, it's it's been good for helping me clean up a little bit. And how much though is the book reflective of Nicole's perspective? And, and I guess what I mean in that is, you know, you're the expert in the field and, you know, it's great that she was doing research and, and learning more about the topic, but ultimately someone has to have a final say in it, right? Uh, so yeah. was, was there a point at which, or, or at any point where you're like, no, this doesn't really reflect what this is about, or was was there that much trust that she was gonna get it right? Um, you know, there was that much trust that she would get it right, and the first time that I saw the first draft, it was it was right. You know, we we had some back and forth about um, some really, you know, specific things, right? We we did a lot of work making sure that, for example, the military uniforms were as accurate as we could possibly make them, right? And you know, we we poured through uh, the the photo the photographs to make sure that you know the, the poofs in the sleeve or the the cusps or or sorry the the cuffs were were. Um, were as accurate as we could possibly make them. You know, we had a, a very long um, debate about uh, the bayonets. Uh, you know, we spent an obscene amount of time looking up um, male underwear in the 1910s to make sure that we drew those accurately. <laughs> so there were things like that that we we definitely spent um, time editing and, you know, that that needed work. But the wholesale project, the first time I saw it, it was just, it was just, it just, it was there, right? Like as an, as a, as an expert on the topic, I just went, wow, she, she got it. Right. And, and again, part of that is, is intuition. Um, but part of that is, is also that, you know, she was, she was really careful. Like she, we spent a lot of time with, um, with a, a particular set of, of maps of the camp because she wanted to make sure that the background always made sense. It wasn't supposed to be like, she wanted you to be able to tell where you were in the camp. Right. So all of that, um, she, again, she did without much intervention on, on my part. I think she's a, she's the star here. <laughs> she did a really great job. So one of the things that I want to talk about too, is the existence of, these camps you know a lot of people are going to be familiar with internment camps during the second world war and and the history the history community has talked about that a lot in recent years but a little less about the first world war so I, i'm curious you know when were these camps opened and what was the process through which individuals were sent to the camps the camps first opened in 1914 not too long after canada officially goes uh, to war. And um, basically, the, the way that you earned your ticket to the camp, so to speak, um, was if you uh, carried a passport from an, a nation who Canada was at war with, right? So in the case of Ukrainians, um, most Ukrainian immigrants to Canada 
at this point um, carried Austro-Hungarian passports. So this was the official reasoning um, why they were considered enemy aliens um, and why they could be interned. Now, not all were interned. Um, just over 8,500 uh, people end up interned during the First World War. About, uh, you know, five to 6,000 of those were, were Ukrainian. Um, about 80,000 others uh, were forced to uh, register with the government and report to local police, right? They had to constantly be checking in with local police to make sure that they, they hadn't left or, or, or uh, sort of, you know, they weren't up to, up to no good. Um, so that was kind of the official reasoning. But um, the actual specific reasons why people were picked up varied greatly. So, for example, uh, John Boychuk, the protagonist of Enemy Alien, um, is simply walking down the street, minding his own business, and he's stopped by the police who ask him where he's from. And he tells them that he's from Galicia, and they say, come with us. Um, others were uh, arrested and interned for trying to cross the borders, uh, most in search of work. Uh, we know that um, Ukrainian, Can uh, Ukrainian Canadians and, and others were um, the first to lose their jobs in patriotic dismissals, Germans as well. Um, and so a lot of them were now destitute and without work and sort of not knowing what else to do. They tried to leave in the hopes that they could find greener pastures in the United States. Others um, were uh, applying for relief to their local governments, um, and the governments would basically just pick them up. And they, so it was kind of a form of weaponized relief. They, you know, they'd throw them into the camps um, as a way to kind of rid their own rules. Um, some were, especially post-1917, um, some were um, arrested for, you know, subversive material, anti-war literature, but also for, for labor agitation um, or sort of for being a member of, uh, you know, in the Ukrainian case, I mentioned the Ukrainian Social Democratic Party. Um, if you were a leader of that party, that was a, a reason to get sent to a camp. So there were all sorts of reasons for why on the ground, um, you know, you, you had to have the Austro-Hungarian passport, but then there was something else that sort of had to uh, put the gaze of the government uh, on you. And so um, we have uh, the, the camps most open in 1914, um, and uh, they're kind of sent, internees are sent um, in waves. Um, some start at one camp and end up at others. So there's a, a really the really interesting story of, of Fort Henry, which housed a camp um, for a few years. So it opened in 1914, um, and the internees there were put to work right away on repairing the fort. Um, and you know the guards loved this, and the and the military loved this because they had this free labor to basically take this disheveled fort and turn it into something sort of like serious again. Um, and then the 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 military thought, well, maybe we could put these internees to work outside of the confines of the camp. Maybe we could get them, uh, you know, building bridges, building roads, clearing land in and around Kingston. And uh, local labor unions actually freak out at this and threaten to go on a general strike if they put the internees to work outside of the camp. So instead of just backing off, the military actually says, well, like, there's no use for them here. Let's send them off to another camp. So Fort Henry closes and and internees get sent to um, Petawawa or to Kappas Casing. So these things are kind of also directly tied to uh, to the kinds of 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 labor they could exploit from the internees um, and the kinds of projects they could put them um, to use for. So in, in Kappas Casing, when, um, when uh, Boychuk first arrives, there's sort of nothing there, right? Kappas Casing at that point is just called McPherson Station, right? But there's, there's absolutely nothing there. Indigenous communities had already been dispossessed, um, but there's sort of no town and there's not even an internment camp yet. So they actually put them to work um, building their own camp, uh, which is really dark. Um, but so in Kappas Casing, um, the internment operations were really meant to be a kind of foothold for colonial expansion and settlement, right? Um, they were supposed to clear the land there. They were going to work in the government experimental farm to figure out what settlers could grow on the clay belt and how the government might profit off the land. 
They were going to build the railway. They were going to provide essential services like firefighting for the earliest settlers and so on. And again, we see this all around the country. I mentioned Fort Henry, but also Banff is another great example of this. The internees there did a lot of the same work, but they were also put to work on private projects like uh, the golf course, right? So they're they're sort of doing all this work. And of course, no Canadians are, 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 are going to actually do this. So the state gets to really capitalize on this captive population of, of non-white migrants by the standards of the early 20th century to do mission critical work in um, building the nation without the perks to getting uh, to join it, right? So it's a kind of in a lot of ways, it's a... Um, it's a really quintessential Canadian story, which is something that I say in the introduction of the book, right? Internment wasn't a regretful anomaly. This was part of the regular functioning of nation building. Yeah, and it really forces us to think too about even just the, a place like Kapiskasin, if you go there, just to think of it, its origins in this light kind of changes the way we can understand and think about a place like that in 2020 and our, our relationship with these places. It, it changes the more we learn about the, the origins of the, the state's presence there. As it's, it's not just a story of dispossession, it's a story of you know, the, the subsequent building up of that colonial state is done through arguably another form of dispossession of these people's rights. And it's, it really is, when you think about it, kind of, obviously it's, it's sad to think about the experiences, but it's also kind of terrifying to think that, you know, we are in this country, we talk a lot about, you know, you fly the flag and patriotism and all that, but you, you hear these stories and the fact that these are the stories that tend to be forgotten is troubling when you think of larger national narratives. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's, um, you know, it's it's a it's a hard thing and a complicated thing to to grapple with. But um, you know, it's the connection between the internment operations and and the Canadian state as we know it are are clear when you start start really looking into it, right? So you mentioned that a lot of the records from this aren't always available. That you came across this memoir kind of by luck and by looking outside of the box. So uh, the question that I would have as a result is how do we know that this is accurate? You know, the, the problems with memory uh, certainly are, are clear that, you know, we there, there can be issues associated with that. But also a, a person who's writing this first person memoir at the time would presumably and probably rightfully have a bit of a vendetta or be upset about what's going on. So how can we fact check the accuracy of what is being written about in the book of, against what other available sources are there? Yeah, so um, this is a really good question. And this was something that I really grappled with, especially when I first found it, because I was reading it. And, you know, of course, you know, the there are things that check out that you just know if, if you know the story of internment. And, and but there were other things that I said, like, oh, really, did that happen? Or, you know, I said, oh, I didn't I didn't know about that. So um, that was something that I was really, really uh, concerned with. So um, for me, what I what I did was I ended up spending um, a lot of time uh, in the archives and a lot of time consulting um, with other folks who who do internment work to make sure that I got as much uh, as I possibly could write. And it was really funny, actually. Sometimes I wasn't even um, I wasn't even thinking about this project, and I'd stumble upon things in the archive that independently corroborated things right so uh and that was really neat actually because i it really made me feel confident in in the legitimacy of of the memoir um so we um we left a few little uh, historical easter eggs that kind of add a kind of historical complexity to this to this book um but these were for example and this was something that i um was able to independently corroborate with another uh source and so i added it in so um the book talks about an escape tunnel um that's dug by the internees that it starts in the second class barracks it makes its way into the first class barracks and then they were going to um they were going to sort of tunnel out and uh 
in another archive, I I also heard this story about this escape tunnel, and it was the same thing, right? It starts here, it ends here. This was their plan. Um, and the guard, I was it was in the, the archival collection of the guard who actually uh, found the tunnel, and his name was Watson Kirkconnell. Um, so for historians of, of Cold War Canada in particular, Watson Kirkconnell is a really big name, right? He's Canada's leading anti-communist academic, and he's a prolific Cold Warrior. Um, so he's like a really famous guy, and, and that's why I was in his, his archive to begin with for my, my dissertation work. But I was reading through his internment records, and I learned that he, um, at the time of the internment operations, he was actually working as a quartermaster for the Canadian Army, and he was stationed first at Fort Henry and then at Capus Casing. So um, Nicole actually drew him into the book. Uh, so she she used a picture of him. And so when you see the the guard actually opening it up, that's the actual person who, who found the tunnel, right? That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I won't give the rest of the Easter eggs away because I, I want people to find them on their own. But, um, you know, we made very uh, deliberate decisions about things in the book that might not really be obvious at first glance um, to have any significance behind them, um, but that were um, that were really, really important to us. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, in terms of just like accuracy and, and fact checking, like there's always um, room for improvement as with any work. But, you know, we really took the time to make sure that um, that we got um, sort of everything that we could write. And when we didn't know something, specifically when I didn't know something, I I was as clear as I possibly could be, right? Like the, the biggest outstanding one being who actually wrote this memoir. And I I sort of own up to that right away uh, because I think that, you know, there, there are things that remain completely unknown to me that I, that I, I want to be honest about, but we also, um, I think weren't going to, you know, I mentioned this earlier about, you know, things like, um, you know, uniform cuffs or hats. Like we, if I'll be honest, we weren't going to lose sleep over any of that kind of minutia if those criticisms ever came our way, because to us, that didn't really make or break the story. We were really set on just making sure we could fact check like the bigger picture, like that all the stories that Boychuk told were, were true, that, you know, the names of people he mentioned um, were the names of the actual people, um, that the dates lined up, you know, like I went and found Boychuk's, um, because uh, there were actually Boychuk's in, term the, in the camp. We don't think that it was him, but I went and used the date he claimed that a bunch of them were paroled on. And I found that in fact, yes, a group of internees were released on that day into the Costco, into the Costco, geez, into <laughs> custody of Dosco, the Dominion and Coal, uh, Coal Steel Company. But uh, so, so we, we did as much of that as we could to make sure that, you know, the, the bigger picture um, was right. But also, we, we left a few kind of minor imprecisions in the work because of their uh, creative potential. So I think a really good example of this is at the beginning of the graphic novel, the, the protagonist is, is being arrested. Um, and behind him, you can see the infamous, um, they are fighting, why aren't you propaganda poster? And, um, you know, that poster wouldn't have been there as early as December 1914. But for us, we, um, we were trying to kind of conjure an emblematic image and feeling uh, and to kind of make a, a subtle point, right? Like we wanted to really make that kind of like dichotomy clear. So, so we went with it. Right. So, but if, if part of it is starting from this, we don't know who wrote this. Like th that's the part that I find yeah. the most interesting about it, right? That you find this memoir, you can't know for sure who wrote it. it does everything that springs off of that then not not come into question? I don't, I don't think it compromises sort of the integrity of the project at all, but does it not leave some sort of doubt as to why this thing was put together and answering that kind of spigger so what question of, of why does this exist? Personally, that would nag at me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if I was sort of doing this project, that would constantly nag at me. So I'm just curious as to how you confront that uh, reality of not knowing 100 percent who wrote this thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, first of all, I think it, it's that's reflective of the 
kinds of ways that Ukrainians overall responded to internment, right? They, I mentioned, right, they lived in fear of the barbed wire fence, and many of them weren't willing to put their names on documents, right, um, for for very valid reasons, right? And, you know, for members of, of the, the organized left, which um, whoever this this author, uh, you know, was, was, was a member of, of the movement, um, you know, we also have to consider that he's writing in 1945. So he just witnessed another wave of political repression um, through DOCR mandated crackdowns, right? There was, um, you know, we saw internment during the Second World War of communists. Um, in the 1930s, we saw um, repression and we saw some Ukrainian leaders, uh, you know, arrested alongside Tim Buck with the with the um, sort of crackdown on the Communist Party. Um, you know, after the war, the Cold War takes off. So for somebody like this, who's sort of conscious of the way that the state engages with um, with his community, um, keeping the name off of it, you know, it doesn't trouble me because it it just makes so much sense. Um, and then, you know, doing the kinds of work that I did in the archives, you know, I, you know, the, the Watson Kirkconnell example is a, is a great example, right? This is a an archive that independently corroborated so many of these details that, you know, if you had not been in the camp, you simply wouldn't know. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I once I started finding those things, I became more and more confident. But, you know, you're right in the sense that, you know, why are you know, why was somebody influenced to write this? I think we can see the the answer to that in the conclusion of the book when he uh, kind of he he reflects, uh, I think, rather profoundly about sort of what this story all means, right? So he talks about, you know, what it means to be, you know, a migrant in Canada who's coming up against a xenophobic society. He talks about what it means to be a worker who's kind of, as we we talked about, like unwittingly engaged in advancing settler colonialism while also being forced, you know, by a bayonet to fuel capitalist accumulation, you know, what this meant for the community psyche, you know, how this historical moment kind of stains the promises of liberal democracy in Canada, while at the same time being really emblematic of it. And I think that's where, you know, he's writing this in 1945. I think that's where we see his his kind of present day biases and perspectives creep in, because he's trying to say, you know, this is actually a much bigger story, like, you know, uh, internment, right, in a lot of ways, right, like, again, isn't this anomaly, look at this bigger picture way um, that the state treated us, right? So I think that gives us a clear sense of, of why he wrote it, and why he wrote it in this way. And I, I feel, um, you know, I don't feel um, worried about about sharing that I feel I feel kind of okay about that. Right. Sort of to bring it full circle, then, given that, and, and I think that's a really good answer to, to the question, how do you think the author, whoever this is, would feel about it being told in this format, the, the story? Because one of the, I, I, I've never read a graphic novel before. I wasn't into comics as a kid. I love reading about what the Graphic History Collective does, but I'm not one who is really engaged in this format a lot because and I realize this is unfair to the format but it feels like something that's for kids mm -hmm. and again I realize that that is unfair to the format but given that it has I, th I think that reputation still mm -hmm. a little bit uh, how do you think that whoever wrote this would feel about the story being represented in this way yeah I mean I think first of all I think that you know to that's that's fair. And I, I understand that people have that um, reaction. Uh, absolutely. I, I get where it comes from. And, you know, I had a lot of um, pushback in, in earlier days from from people that I mentioned that I was doing this work to who kind of felt like maybe it was a little bit, um, you know, either distasteful or that it wasn't serious or that, you know, it wouldn't convey what I would want it to convey. Um, but I I've I've been comforted by people's responses to it once they've seen the finished project. And I think, you know, I, I don't say this to 
to to brag or anything, but you know, I I feel like I've convinced some of the naysayers that this is actually a really um, a really profound uh, and important format that we can we can tell these stories through. Um, so I think that you know whoever this is. I would hope that they would see that, you know, this is a, a serious project and it, it really tried to take seriously their story and to do justice to their story. And that the intent was to to get them on a record because they had for so long not been able to be on the record. I mean, chances are that by the time historians started publicizing internment, this person had already passed away. So they had lived their whole lives not getting a chance to to tell other people about this and you know i'm really struck you know the the book ends um you know with with the with boychuk going to to a cemetery and and um he's going to visit the the people who died uh when who he was with in the camps and uh you know he he says right like here are the men who cleared forests lay forgotten by the world as if they were made by another god but i had not forgotten them as i walked back into town i remembered what all of us internees promised each other in the camp we were going to tell the world about how we were tortured and it would become a part of history you know and i think when I um, when I read that, first of all, uh, I weeped. I'll be honest, but 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 second of all, I I took that as a I took that as a green light, hmm. you know. That yeah, I, that, I think that's a yeah, that's a very powerful line for for sure. You mentioned in that in, in your response sort of this idea that some people around you did not take this project seriously, and you also mentioned earlier the issue of funding. And anyone who has gone through a graduate program as understands and can sympathize with the struggle of trying to secure funding for anything, not only just how difficult it is, but the hoops that you have to jump through in order to get it. And what's interesting about this particular book compared to some of the academic books that you know I've looked at and, and seen is this has a broader range of it seems to me broader range of funders so you know who who was your target for funding and how difficult was it to secure that funding for a graphic history novel mm -hmm. yeah so um i i uh thank you for the the graduate student solidarity comment there, you know, but I, I think you're right. Everyone who goes through this knows, uh, you know, knows what this, this can be like. Um, and it's not you know, fun. I, I don't want to say that we just know what it's like. It sucks. It's a terrible process. It's, uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody else. It's <laughs> not fun. I, I never want to do it again because of how tedious and annoying it can be. And that even when you or in my cases, at least, when in the cases where I was successful with funding, it was more relief than joy. Absolutely. So that that's sort of my little rant on the the funding process. But yeah, yeah, you know, like I've been involved in a in a few projects this year that uh, all all of us were were graduate students or we were newly graduated precarious faculty, and it really opened my eyes to the kinds of structural limitations on us if we want to get involved in the historical community. So, for example, I, I organized, um, I co-organized a conference on labor in the Canadian carceral state, which was unfortunately uh, canceled because of COVID-19. Um, but because none of us had permanent institutional affiliation, opening a bank account um, or finding a university to administer our funds for us was like really difficult. And that's just one example. But we ended up having to rely on this kind of patchwork network of like benevolent actors to help piece our funding system together. And, but even that, like it was such an added stress because instead of it being this kind of straightforward process of cut this check, deposit this money, balance the books, it became a literally national collaborative project of email chains and phone calls just to accomplish the simplest of things. Right. Yeah. We yeah. all expect that conferences are going to be hard work, but we were worrying about all the things that are normally the simplest tasks. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is a, a really kind of small fish 
um, when it comes to graduate student and precarious faculty complaints. But I think it's also emblematic of the kinds of roadblocks that we have when we do what we're told we should do, which is to partake in our community and add to the conversation, right? Like the system isn't really set up to facilitate um, our, our participation, which is, you know, my, my kind of hot take for, for today. But in terms of like the, the book specifically, um, I had a I had a really hard time convincing people um, that that this was this was legitimate, right? And and some of that was that you know people rightfully didn't really understand the format, and I don't I don't blame anyone for that, right? Like this is I, I get it, I think that's that's really um, that's that's fair, but some of it was was a little bit more um, problematic, right? Like I had funding sources who. Um, basically didn't believe I was legitimate because of uh, my lack of credentials, which is mm. sort of a funny thing to say to somebody, you know, who's a PhD ABD with several publications that prove I can pull this off, right? And part uh, publications on internment at that, right? Like I had a track record and the field expertise on the particular subject. And yet I was straight up told by several funding sources that as a graduate student, I just wasn't eligible, right? And I think the other problem that's maybe a bit more broadly uh, applicable, is that um, it wasn't all that hard uh, to justify that that the artists deserve to be paid, right? That was a budget line that made sense to everybody. But I couldn't get anyone to agree that my labor was worth something. So, <laughs> you know, the translation work, the tens, if not hundreds of hours in the archives, the script building, the fact checking, the reading and researching, the five years of administrative work, not a single source of funding agreed that this was worth anything. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I suppose, you you know, you could argue that this is part of life. You know, you're gaining experience. Um, it's a labor of love. It's worth it in the end. Right. And like to some extent, again, that's that's fine, I suppose. I don't disagree that uh, it's a labor of love, because if I wasn't absolutely in love with this project, believe me, I would have <laughs> talked a long time ago. Um, but I also, you know, I don't want to shy away from from pointing out um, that it's really problematic that the work we do as historians doesn't register for everyone as labor. Um, that's really, really scary. Yeah. Um, but I got lucky in the end, right? In a, in a way that I think is kind of one of these more, like it's, it's a sort of more subtle privilege that um, my community was interested in doing commemorative work on internment. And I was able to, to tap into sources of funding that way. Um, so I was able to find just enough to get the artist paid. And, you know, I, I said that was good enough. I'll, you know, I'll eat it. I want to get this done as long as I can pay the artist. Let's go. So. And I will say too, the, the whole labor of love thing, I've, I've had people at various events and, and conferences and stuff, again, try to justify either underpaying or not paying graduate students because, you know, you should be doing this for love and for passion. I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I, I love it. Sure. But you know, the main cause of divorce is financial issues. So, you know, love doesn't overcome everything. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to have a roof over your head and feed yourself and all that. So yeah, the, the way in which labor is completely discounted, unless you're a full-time faculty member is really shocking to me. Um, you know, those people's labor seems to be understood and appreciated, but everyone below them doesn't seem to be. And it, 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 it really is upsetting to see, uh, and, and to see the people who have been kind of pushed out of the, profession because of that it's it's really troubling and it's a trend that certainly needs to be addressed uh, in some capacity now let's not end on that that doesn't seem like a fun way to, <laughs> to end the show so uh let, let's finish with this like when people are are out they're looking for something to read what is the pitch for the enemy alien for you what if someone comes to you and says, here, I see this on the shelf. I'm at chapters. I see this on the shelf. Well, I'm not at chapters. I'm online. And it comes up as a recommended reading because we can't go to bookstores right now. Why should I read this book? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, you know, because I, I would argue, first of all, because 
I think it's a really fun book and not in the sense of the, the content, but because of its, its format, it's accessible, but it tells you a true story. You learn about history, uh, you know, without doing the hard work of <laughs> reading a history book, right? Which I think is like, you know, I want to be very, you know, practical about that. I think that's a, that's a huge draw, but I also think, you know, to get a little bit more, you know, philosophical, it, it really drives home a few really critical things that I hope can, you know, inspire readers. I think um, the first thing is that, you know, the, the book shows that in, in times of crisis, the Canadian state shows us time and time again that it's willing to scapegoat the most vulnerable members of society, right? And, and we need to be conscious of that, especially now. Um, as the buzz around emergency powers is increasing again, right? Like it's, um, you know, in a lot of ways, this has been a really hard time to release a book. You know, my book launch was canceled because of, of COVID. But in a lot of ways, you know, the, the parallels between um, this book and, you know, not only things like the pandemic, you know, the pandemic ravages the, the internment camps, but also um, the, the conversation that we're starting to have about, you know, what do emergency powers look like? I think are, are, it's, it's very timely in that sense. Um, the second thing that I think the book teaches people, again, in this kind of subtle way that doesn't hit them over the head, um, is that, you know, we really need to be clear that the victims of xenophobia and racism don't just live um, in this kind of like, it's not this isolated year or two of discrimination, right? They live their whole lives there in that space and their experiences under the system of Anglo supremacy are total, right? And that's something that, you know, I think readers can take away from this book, especially in that reflective um, section uh, towards the end of the book, right? The third thing I think that I think readers might might um, sort of think about if they read this book is the ways that martial law is really implemented um, in practice, right? So, you know, it's subtle. It doesn't transpire all at once. There's usually a lag between when the government gives itself power and when things like internment or conscription and broader political repression happen. And it's not always obvious that it's happening. So and all of this, I think, creates this perfect illusion with the public that martial law doesn't really have any material consequences because the kinds of tangible markers, um, you know, that, that things have changed aren't necessarily there. And we can compare that and contrast that to other elements of war that are super obvious. So the point is that it's important to, to kind of really stay vigilant because usually by the time that the consequences of martial law are explicit, it's already too late. And I think this book can teach us that it's important to, you know, be clear eyed about how martial law materializes and how it's used. And, you know, perhaps most importantly, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, on paper, state power is certainly absolute, um, but it can always, always be checked. And I think John Boychuk and, 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 you know, the fellow, inter his fellow internees, I think in a lot of ways did that in their own way. And that's a great reason why people should buy the book. Absolutely. So we would encourage everybody to go get it, check it out. It's Enemy Alien, A True Story of Life Behind Barbed Wire from our friends at Between the Lines Presses. And uh, you can certainly get it online, right, Cassandra? Yes, absolutely. On the website. Yeah. So uh, check out uh, BTL. Is it btlbooks.com? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, btlbooks.com. Yes. Yeah. So definitely head there, check it out, uh, and, and uh, really, I really enjoyed it as somebody who doesn't read graphic novels, had never read one before, really enjoyed it as Cassandra said off the top, you know, it's something you can go through pretty quick. Um, but it's very engaging and really keeps you into, into it the whole time. So uh, again, uh, Cassandra, congratulations and good luck with the book. Really hope it does well. And, uh, certainly, uh, definitely worth people checking it out. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, appreciate you joining us. Please do, if you have not yet, subscribe to the show, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Uh, do the likes and the ratings. Give us some comments. That just helps other people find the show, keeps the show going. Uh, and if you're enjoying the show, please do uh, tell your friends to check out some of our past episodes. Uh, recently, as part of our pandemic weekly episodes, uh, you know, we had uh, our episode talking about Hamilton as public history. That was a lot of fun to have Tara Brookfield and Chris Tindall on 
to talk about Hamilton, talked about the documentary Finding Sally. That uh, is available on CBC Gem now, the documentary. Uh, if, we could, uh, if you want to go back, listen to the episode about that. We drafted all-time great fantasy hockey teams. So a lot of stuff out there to check out. So please do go back into the History Slam archive if you enjoyed this episode. Of course, we will be back next week as we continue our weekly episodes during COVID-19. And just, I will shout out to Aaron Boys. We finished yesterday our year in review, 100 year later segment. We went back and did the years we missed in the 2000s uh, from 1910, 11, and 12. And then yesterday we did our Winners at War recap where we decided the biggest event of the 1910s so head over to active history check that out check out all the content out over at active history we got a lot of good stuff going on over there so uh, if you want to you can always reach the show history slam at gmail.com i'm available on twitter at dr shawnee fever if you have ideas for suggestions of what you would like to see as we move forward so we hope everyone is staying safe out there we'll be back with you next week but until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.